0: Hello, listener.
1: Yes, you. Hi, listening for free. How are you?
0: <laughs> are you listening to this podcast? Are you enjoying this podcast? Have you listened to every single episode in our two seasons yet?
1: If not, you might want to go back and check out our archives.
0: And if you love it, um, would you be so kind as to write us a quick review? Because my mum is running out of words to say. It really does help us, the podcast, and therefore
1: the world. Forever grateful, yours truly just out here saving the world by ourselves without oh, any superheroes no, 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 like no, no, Spider-Man no. actually existing just human beings okay bye
0: <laughs>
1: hi i'm Luisa martinga and i'm gail galley and this is an idiot's guide to saving the world the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start
0: we are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline,
1: we are not halfway to achieving them. Mmm, so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. You know, the big stuff. All the stuff. This very special episode was recorded live at Stockholm Climate Week in late April. We were joined by all kinds of brilliant speakers as we looked at the many different ways innovations underpinned by the global goals can not just help to find solutions for both people and the planet, but also help to accelerate the kind of systemic changes we need to address the climate crisis. Oh, and plot twist, I wasn't actually there. I mean, hello! Gail, how are you?
0: how are you? Where are you?
1: I'm in Utopia, I'm already there. I'm reporting from, I see everyone else has got a Swedish background. This is what Sweden will be like in 2050. So just so you know, just so you know, nobody moves. Nobody moves.
0: <laughs> so welcome Luisa Madinga, my co-host on An Idiot's Guide, Saving the World. Um, I have to say I'm in Stockholm and it's not far from that. I mean, I think this is literally the most paradisical city I've ever set foot in. Have you ever been here?
1: not not even once
0: well I'm so sorry we couldn't fundraise all the money to get you here, maybe next time um, if anyone's watching and wants to get this idiot to join this idiot, because I am feeling very alone, I am hosting like, I've got two earpieces you in look, you're just like you sat behind so a mic in you're flat I'm so lonely, how are we going to save so how are we going to save the world <laughs> thank God I've got some guests coming on so as I've just said this is the first time we've done this live is it not, but I believe you've been in front of live audiences many times, stand up comedian Louisa Medinga,
1: how's this one feeling for you? This one's feeling good. I'm, I'm excited. I like trying out new technologies. I think that's kind of like what we're doing, right? Like we're talking about the technologies that'll help us change the world in a, in a way. Zoom has done that. It's introduced to us new problems. Like um, like when you talk too long and the person hasn't moved. So you think, oh man, I'm going to, have to repeat this now again, because <laughs> this person this person hasn't moved in five minutes. They're either They're either frozen or Bored to petri- 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 petrified levels. Um, I wanted to come, I wanted to come, then I thought, you know what, I can't fly all the way there. My carbon footprint is killing me, so you know, I'm um, I'm taking that off. It's my new diet. I'm off the carb- carbons. I'm off the carbons. I've <laughs> carb free.
0: Why is no one? that a thing. So maybe what we'll, well, that's ca- where we've been going wrong. We've been trying to tell everybody to reduce their carbon counting emissions. Our carbons. Whereas loads of people look like I'm, I'm off carbs. Yeah. <laughs> that right? That is what we should hundred percent be doing. Yes. We should be getting people to give up carbs. People love that. I don't
1: think it'll be hard I don't think it'll be hard to tell people, you know what, eat all the bread you want, just count your carbons rather. Then everyone will be like, oh yes, yes, I'm saving <laughs> the world. I'm not flying to Sweden. I'm just eating bread, 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 bread in my mouth. <laughs> I think, I think We just solved it. Uh, Goodbye, everybody. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Uh, Good night. Good night, Stockholm.
0: No, I don't. But I do think we're setting this up well for our role as idiots in saving the world, as we've just decided that we simply need to eat more bread and that'll be fine. We are talking today, actually, about we've got some guests who are going to join me on stage. So I'm going to ask you in a while just to mute yourself and watch and listen and maybe come up back with some more genius ideas like giving up carbs And then, on the other side of that, we're going to have you come back. I'd like you to tell me what you make, tell me how I've done. And, and then we'll have some uh, more friends join us on screen and we can have one, another one of our episode chats live. So is that good with you?
1: Oh, I'm excited. I'm yeah. always excited. We've gotten to meet some amazing people, so... We have. I hope today you've got a, a nice, nice little roster for me to... Uh, well,
0: I think meet we've got some pretty cool one. folk. Yeah, I think we have. I think we have. So you tell me after the break. See you in a while. So if I can, ask you all to welcome our guests to the stage. I can't believe I've got through the first link without actually making anything go wrong with the technology. He's there. Honestly, normally I record from the shed in my garden and he records from his a cupboard in his Manhattan apartment, which is the only place that there's any degree of quiet. And we don't even manage that. So, so far, so good. Hi, team. Hi. Hey. Thanks for joining me. So we are going to chat about how can we foster the right atmosphere for innovation and entrepreneurs to solve the climate crisis. And I'm so pleased because we've got experts from across the piece sat in front of me, and I'm going to start with you, Sarah, I think, if I may. Would you please introduce yourself? I feel like a chat show host, so I'm going (laughs) to act a bit like one. (laughs) Tell us your name, where do you come from, and what do you do?
2: Hi, thanks for having me. My name's Sarah Hunter. I am, I guess, a policy and technology expert. I spent the last 14 years at Google advising all kinds of crazy technologists on government relations, and now I'm on the board of various organisations, including the UK's new advanced research invention agency. So ask me about technology
0: secrets. God, that doesn't often come together, sort of UK exciting invention, but um, how, how thrilling. So you've really been a policy expert, I think, as long as, uh, certainly for the last 10, 12 years, you'd say. Sure. How do you see the world of policy, which is a sort of, I see it as the kind of umbrella under which all of the, rich, the great stuff has to happen. Do you see it keeping up? Uh,
2: short answer no oh. and you know I don't think it's for lack of trying I, th- I think government is very aware that they are behind the times in terms of technology and it's partly because technology does move so I mean I think we feel that as, as real people as well don't we no sooner have we learnt one new app than something new comes along you know the next day so I don't think it's surprising they're behind but I also think it's partly because most policymakers in the west certainly are sort of arts graduates they're not technologists or scientists themselves whereas countries like Taiwan or Singapore you've got a lot more engineers and scientists in roles of responsibility in government and they tend to be a bit better informed but no i i think government as a whole is very
0: behind on technology and a, and that is a problem particularly in the space of climate I, I think i've told you this before i used to run an advertising agency and i remember once a delegation of ministers coming um to make a cultural review of, of the sector and of digital technologies and as they left they really chuckled and said oh this youtube thing do you think it's gonna do think it's gonna take off i mean youtube yeah. had been invented comfortably 10 years earlier I mean, it was absolutely bananas <laughs> so my faith in the uk government at least at that point, was not so high. You've obviously worked with many governments in your time, I am guess they're thinking about at X. Mm. You came up with all these amazing advances, many of them in climate, but some of them not. So feel free to answer from any of that portfolio. But can you help us understand maybe the journey that you go on when, as a big innovative company, you come up with something that you want to put into the world but you have to get through the kind of local or the national policy frameworks and systems. Yeah, I mean, there's been some...
2: Certainly in the technology field as a whole, there's lots of successes. You know, I, I worked for many years on self-driving cars, and there, actually, the US federal government was really excited and very supportive of the technology... Being brought to market really quickly, and so we're very helpful and, and sort of creative in in coming up with ways to sort of help the policy move along. It, in the climate space, I think actually it's the first time I've ever seen a sector where the government and the startups really want things to come to market really quickly. Like for the first time ever, I think the interests are really aligned. You know, if we let the market. Decide, then yes, climate tech will happen. We will all change to renewables, but it's not going to happen quick enough. And so actually you do need policy to intervene to change those market dynamics. And actually I think governments around the world get that that's important and that their role is, is to be part of that, that, that
0: set of solutions. Do you, just go back on that driverless cars example for a second, because I remember the... the I was going to say the threat... I am quite scared of of driverless cars. But I remember the idea of it being born. And that does feel like ages ago. And we still haven't got cars whizzing around without drivers in them. Is that a policy lag? Is that because it's fundamentally a bad idea? Was I right all along? Uh, Why is that taking longer to come to market? And are there learnings there that are relevant to climate?
2: Well, I mean, the truth is, if you lived in Arizona, you would see empty cars driving around, because it is happening in in many places in the US. it's a technology thing, to be honest. I think uh, the companies realise that you can't rush these things which have safety implications. So it's just going to take longer than even the technologists hope for. Um, but I think there is a lesson for climate, which is so much of climate tech has got a physical footprint. It's not just on our phones, magic overnight, like it feels like technology is. Actually, climate tech is is hardware. It's you know direct air capture in the ground. It's green hydrogen plants. It's really physical things. And those do take time. And sometimes it takes time because you're building things, like you you can't magic it up overnight. But sometimes it takes time because there are local policy sort of, um, you have to jump over various sort of rules and regulations to get things built. You have to check with the community. You have to get permission to do things. And that is where I think government could be faster, you know, helping facilitate those Opportunities to build things on the ground quicker
0: than the normal processes allow. Um, thank you. I'm going to come back to that human side of things in, in a sec, um, but now I'm going to come to Maya. Let me ask you to introduce yourself.
3: Absolutely. I am Maya Rebermark from Future Earth, who is one of the biggest networks of researchers in in the world and we we basically, there's about 40,000 different people all across the world working to collaborate for advancing research for transformations towards sustainability across multiple different themes and I think what was really interesting for me is the kind of the other side of the technology story as well, is the, the magical technology that we already have within, you know, the natural world that has been stabilising our systems for such a long time. And we have a lot of work that focuses on biodiversity, on, you know, kind of securing what in some terms we call the global commons. And the Earth Commission that, that I am the comms director for, we are the researchers that have come together to kind of really look at this complex interaction between natural systems and between humans human, social, and and kind of ecological systems, but but critically from a well-being and justice perspective to actually bring those two knowledge systems together to quantify what what is a safe planet, but also what is a just one for for people. Um, And so that that will be out quite soon. We're we're really, really excited about bringing that out into the world because it enables this kind of measurement, but also a a health check of how are we performing not just in the climate sphere, but actually across many other different areas areas of protection within the biosphere that help to accelerate climate action and without including them. We're not going to be hitting
0: those goals, the Paris goals. I'm actually going to now come to you Bengt. Why don't you uh, tell us who you are and where do you come from and what do you do?
4: Where do I come from? My name is uh, Bengt obviously, a very Swedish name. I am from southern Sweden. I grew up there and I am what they call a serial environmental entrepreneur. So, um, so my first company was an air purification company and my big investment now, in my work in time and everything is in uh, trying to solve this issue. How do we come up with solutions to reduce plastic in the ocean? So that's what I work with and then uh, I have started a company called Blue Water. I'm sitting here in this uh, big room with my two water bottles and I work a lot on trying to solve that and try to do the water locally, purify the water that is there and let's come up with sustainable bottles that you can reuse. Our logotype is round so if you can't reuse it refuse it. So We are about in our company trying to solve these issues with the distribution. So we have a water purification area. So we have the best water purifiers in the world. We call them the blue water makers after our company. And they're very sustainable and they can basically clean all waters of uh, all pollutants.
0: So you're obviously innovating and, and I'm going to make up a word, entrepreneuring from the ground up, from the water up. And Mai, actually, both of you are working in a kind of top-down policy and, and science driven way from the top. How did you ex, uh, X, I suppose Sarah, particularly see the likes of what you know and the science and, and the policy get reaching the entrepreneurs. And then I'll come back to you, banks, and say, mm. do you, how do you rely on or ignore what comes down at you from a policy yeah. level? But first of all, how do you connect what the, the, the policy framework is to the entrepreneurs to get
2: the products out the door? I mean, entrepreneurship is, to my mind, where change comes from. And so, actually, if you want to change things, I always say bring an entrepreneur into the situation. And actually, often, policy is not a problem. Like, often, it's just sort of there and it's it's not an issue. But when it is an issue, when there's a regulation, or locally or nationally, that, that you run into when you're trying something new, I often find bringing the entrepreneur face-to-face with the policymaker to explain, actually, we've got a common interest. You know, what you're talking about, I, ministers around the world would be Thrilled to know that there are ways to mm. cheaply and renewably get yeah. more clean water into the country, and would be their first question would be, "Well, how can we help?" You know, most most policymakers want the same things that you want. The challenge is then getting the policy change in order to facilitate it, and how do you sort of prioritize that
0: over all the other things they've got going on? Mm. Yeah, of course, but do the conversations happen? Do the spaces get made? that for example, I, I can only imagine how complex a sector. Water is. I mean, you were in air before that. It doesn't get much more vital than that. Do you, have you been to see ministers and policymakers? How, how do you interact with that world?
4: I think we have environmental ministers here in Stockholm and we had one here visiting. And I think big, we should love them because they've been like very quick to react, for example, on plastic. So they have like, put the goals, so the industry now is like, trying to catch up. So we are like, very fortunate, like, we live in a, in a great world. We have a government setting rules and regulations. Where, for example, we need clean water and we need uh, no plastic solutions. So the government is like actually, and the policy makers, they are like putting in laws that forces these companies to do something. And before they were like, oh, people don't want it, but people want it and people understand it. And now, thanks to that, there's a race for plastic-free packaging for example and that's the challenge that we work on and there is no solution for example for plastic free bottles yet
2: But I think I mean to your point like you are in a world where actually in the plastics world like I think policymakers have been very quick to intervene and, and engage in it. There are other areas where policymakers, all they are hearing is you know some very depressing science and corporates, sort of traditional players in their world who say well there's you know there, there's there's not that many solutions available other than very difficult decisions, you know, enormous carbon taxes other things you have to do, or you have to like, you know, ch- put a lot of money, public money into changing systems. And that's very hard, I think, for policymakers to hear. What they don't hear is an entrepreneur coming and going, there's another way, mm-hmm. you know, and that is what actually people like I try and do is say, it doesn't always have to be lose-lose, you know, there are ways to help reduce carbon and to grow the economy at the same time, it's just not in the way that we've done it in the past. And I think that's hard
0: for policymakers to to hear. I know this platform, We Don't Have Time, is always about solutions, and I know today has been talking about exponential solutions. I feel like we need exponential leaps in things like communication, understanding, and also interventions. I think sometimes you really need, whether it's a government or a system, to to really make a a bold move. Now I think... We're going to be joined again by So from New York, who I hope has been keeping up. I'm exhausted, Louis. There's very clever things being talked about. I'm feeling like an idiot. How can you bring up the IQ for a sec? What do you reckon? Yeah,
1: you're also saying very optimistic things like, I hope he's been keeping up. I haven't. I've, I've been <laughs> pretending to listen. I'm glad you just made a point of saying uh, this is for an idiot's guide to save in the world so people don't assume we're the people bringing any kind of no value idea. to this conversation. No no, no. No, 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 We just know some people. Low
0: bar, we low bar. Yeah, people. we know some clever people, which is a great start. <laughs> but honestly, what did you make of all that? It's, it's big stuff. I mean, I'm always mind blown by, there's all this enormous amount of dark web, research, science, technology, policy going on, and then someone has to make the paper bottle. Like, that's a big funnel, isn't it?
1: Yeah, to come all the way down to that. it's uh, it's. I don't know how they do it, frankly, because... I mean, if, you, if I were just listening to, uh, I think it was Maya who was talking about the world that she was working in, and it just sounds so complex. I don't know how you actually even get anything done when you have that many partners and people and politicians to talk to. I mean, that, I think that's why they have the think tanks. The think tanks, I think, is where everything happens. Uh, I've never been to one myself. It's, I think it's people who professional face contortionists and sound makers. They just get together in a think tank and, you know, and you think nothing is happening. You think nothing's happening, but that group then gets taken and moved to the next tank, which is the what were you thinking tank? Uh, This is where you get to actually share your ideas in your what were you thinking tank. And, you know, you need the rethink tanks um, to get these ideas done because I have no idea how anyone's gotten to the solutions that we have because you walk into a retail store these days and it is just... Hard decisions to make. It's plastic everywhere, even on the vegetables, which makes no sense. The humble banana, God's greatest invention, the best packaging in the world, (laughs) perfectly packaged. It protects the fruit inside. For eating, you, you know, you could have the dirtiest hands and you can eat a banana. But what do we do? We put the banana in in styrofoam and then we put it in cling wrap and we cling wrap that and then we put a little box, a little cardboard box. And then we cling wrap that cardboard box with a little window on the top so you can look inside <laughs> and watch your bananas over ripen before you get to eat them. It's, it's really quite something. And I'm glad we always have the kind of people on here who are actually like moving the needle towards where we need to go. But uh, we are running out of time. So what your point was, which is, uh, let's get on with it, is the most important thing.
0: <laughs> I just could imagine you've been listening to the first three panellists and you've been just trying to work out what, what how does a think tank work. So you've got people in yes. tanks chewing their faces off just, to think. Yeah. I'm not sure you That's are what... keeping up. I think you might have to work a bit <laughs> harder. Because you have got four people coming now who are also equally clever, there's so four of them, and we're going to attempt to interview them together even though you're there in funny Swedish utopia and I'm on set so do you think we're going to pull that one off for our first ever live podcast
1: oh yeah that whole ramble was just me attempting to hopefully tell the people we're going to talk to now to dumb it down (laughs) simplify this is a podcast forget all these other things that have happened on this this convention you're not talking to those people anymore you're talking to Average Joe's.
0: I think you've done that. So please. I think you'd please dumb it down. (laughs) (laughs) That's also one of those drinking ads. Please drink responsibly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please present responsibly. (laughs) <laughs> not for people with IQs under 18.
0: So I did let on before we d- you joined that um, normally I'm in a shed and you're in your cupboard in Manhattan. And I'm, so I'm really, I'd like you to paint the picture of where you actually are because I know you're not where you look like you are, that is for sure. Where are you?
1: I, I am in my cupboard. Are I haven't, you? I, have, I haven't even made the bed in my cupboard. I'm so glad we're on Zoom. So, so who, gave face... you that,
0: who gave you that beautiful background then? Was that, was that we don't have time?
1: I, I googled Stockholm. utopia. I Googled Utopia and uh. there were no black people. So I don't, know, I don't know what part of Google this is, but it's not representative. I don't know what happened to the blacks. They all got skin lightning. Beams.
0: (laughs) Thank God everyone else has joined at that point before it got really awkward. Hi, everyone. You could not have joined at a better time. Oh, God, they're all smiling, which means they heard what you just said. Um, Hi, everyone. Um, Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming in. I apologise in advance for anything else, Louisa goes on to say. Um, Thank you so much for joining us here on the stage at We Don't Have Time, Stockholm Climate Week, and our first ever um, experimental, shall we call it, edition of An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. We've just had, as you are probably watching, a really good conversation with some people talking about the macro landscape that is the research, science, uh, technology and policy world all the way down to a fab innovator who um, gave us an incredibly tantalising preview of what a paper bottle is going to look like. And then he whipped it off again. But um, it is exciting to think about it. And I'm excited to talk to you all because you are all, I'd say, we're moving into the frontline practice Of things, and then we are also going to get into the frontline impact of those things on all people all the time. So, let's kick off with. I'm going to start with Michael. I think Michael Smith. Hello. Tell us where you're coming in from and introduce yourself. Tell us what you're up to and why you're here.
5: Thank you for having me. That was a very tough act to follow. Um, I'm in Santa Barbara, in California. So I'm. I'm, uh, it's, It's morning here and excited to join you. I was a founder, I sold some businesses and I was in a position to make positive change in the world. And I was looking around and things were breaking down and I wanted to do something about it. So, started using capital as a way to address different systemic issues I was seeing and in the form of climate tech. And uh, got a lot of great experience, and then set up a fund called Regeneration about three years ago, addressing uh, exactly you know the the problem of the banana that was just discussed. So, It turns out of of everything in our world, 93% of it ends up in a landfill or an ocean or a natural system. Almost nothing's being reused right now. Those are, those are just the realities of modern living and we can do something about it. It takes a systems change. We call it circular economy and and that's what we invest in. So we're looking at uh, consumer industries, apparel, packaging, food, consumer products. How do we make things better? The things that go into the products that we're consuming, the brands and services, and then reuse to keep things out of landfill, keep it flowing, and uh, and upgrade the system. So, thank you for for having me. I'm excited to be here for the conversation. Well, let me just pick up on that for a sec, because
0: so, I've heard we've we, we know each other. In fact, confession, we know we all know each other. Great, and we have been talking, haven't we, about the, sort of a new slot. It's not just climate tech. We're going to try and get into this concept of consumer climate tech. So, can you just unpack that a little bit as a concept, and and explain how does it lead you to invest in the the, the businesses that you are investing in?
5: Right. So, a lot of climate tech. It, it's very exciting. We we're just hearing about you know novel approaches to energy and, and cars and all sorts of, of areas, but. The the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the the products we consume are upwards of 70% of global emissions. They're a huge, huge emitter, and it will require hardware and software solutions from big consumer industries, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Apple, Amazon, committing to making things differently. To having new processes and taking things back, repairing things, fixing things. It's a whole new set of tactics that we're going to need. And we call those consumer climate technologies. And as a fund, regeneration is looking to, you know, put capital into, accelerate them, get them into market, get their technology readiness levels up. That was a high IQ term, and like make them viable so we can all, you know, share them, not just you know, the wealthiest, but like really democratize the technology, bring it to the world and, and really make people feel good about, you know, their purchases and, and engage them, allow governments and, and, and corporates to make good on the commitments that they've made by 2025, 2030. How do we actually hit those things? So consumer climate tech is needed to uh, enable that transition, if you will.
1: Please don't highlight the th- moments that we probably won't understand. Uh, I think people are kind of safely assume at this point. but could you could you expand on like what is currently working in this space and is it and what needs to be really changed either on the policy side or on the consumer side for for things to ramp up?
5: Well, the good news is on the consumer side, there's so much interest in, in demand, particularly in younger generations. This is in many times the, the number one most important issue that, you know, folks uh, a little younger than myself are, are thinking about. And even really all ages are um, the costs are, are obviously an issue. But regulation is what's exciting. And, and, and unlike in um, other parts of climate tech for what we do, the circular economy action plan of the EU is the driving legislation for how everything's going to be made. You're not gonna be able to buy a shirt that doesn't have a product passport telling you how it was made, who made it, if it got repaired, if it got resold. You're not gonna be able to say something's uh, environmental. If it's not, you're gonna to have to prove it with science-based targets. You can't burn clothes anymore and things like that, just to give you some examples. So the, the grown-ups in the room right now are the EU and they're really pushing forward on how things are being made. California, where I am, is looking to the EU, so is New York, so are other countries. So there's a lot of positive momentum, uh, regulatory-wise, and then the biggest companies in the world are saying they're going to do this stuff, and and they want to. They they're put out a signal to do it, but they need realistic, you know, solutions that are affordable, that are scalable, that can hit at the, you know, the way that they work. So, that that's some that gives me some optimism that we can get there.
0: That's a brilliant and point um, to hand over to Sean, I think, because um, Sean, you are uh, one of the most pro innovation. People I've ever met in the activist space. So, Wadek, can you introduce yourself to us and tell us what's keeping you busy at the moment?
6: Lovely. Thank you so much, girl. Lovely to be with you all. Lovely to see you as well, Louise. So, yep, Sean Sutherland, uh, co founder of A Plastic Planet and Plastic Free, probably the most unlikely eco warrior you'll ever meet, massive plastic sinner, serial entrepreneur. And then some seven years ago, I had a very, very rapid personal epiphany of of finding out what we do every single day with our addiction to plastic. And I wondered if there was a way to create a different kind of organization that was pro-solution, pro-business, because obviously as an entrepreneur, I believe in the power of business to be the tool of change, to see, is there a way of creating a different kind of business that can help the world, ignite, inspire them to turn off the plastic tap?
0: What, brilliant. And uh, the thing I think is um, the, a really good bridge between the first panel I had and, and talking to you right now is you work with Plastic Free, you're working with the innovators and the actual stuff, right? You, uh, plasticfree.com is a materials science library of all the best replacements there are available, right, in plastics. It's quite granular, quite real. But you also are working at the most multilateral... You know, you're know, working within the UN system, of the, the Plastics Treaty, and you're running the UK dialogues on that. So you've got these two worlds that you're spanning. The, the policy, Just as the panel did before, you're spanning the policy and then also getting right down into the nitty-gritty of, of how does this stuff come to market. Do you see, from your perspective of, of sitting on both those sides, do you see the two sides interacting? Do they do it enough? And and if not, how can we bring them closer together?
6: It's absolutely essential that we have both because any conversation that we have with big industry, and I'm sure Michael has exactly the same experience, voluntary cannot work for big business. We built this entire system and fundamentally so many manufacturing systems, all the consumer goods companies are built on fossil fuels and they're built on plastic it's so difficult for them to change voluntarily. So the new Greenpeace report that came out, and we just think about plastic alone, that came out at the end of last year, not a single big CPG consumer goods company, sorry, Louisa, well, not a a single um, big industrial manufacturer is going to hit their plastic targets on reduction and this is because it's just so difficult for us to wean ourselves off this incredible but toxic and unbelievably cheap material that has become the default for anything so we have to have new laws we have to have things like you know or everything that mainly the eu are really driving forward we have to have extended producer responsibility one of the most exciting things right now that as you mentioned that we're involved in is The fact that we have the united nations we have every member state pretty much agreeing that we have to have a globally legally binding treaty on plastics so these things i think are the only way that we can enable industry to change because we create that level playing field it is impossible for industry to change alone some companies, I don't want to name one, Mars, they're actually using more plastic than they ever did in 2018. So here we are, five years on from Blue Planet 2, from the big awakening of what we're doing to the planet every single day with plastic. And yet nothing is slowing down. We are on track to treble plastic by 2040. Everything that uh, that Bent was talking about, what we're doing to the oceans, it isn't just the oceans, it's the air It's the fact that 70 percent of all our clothes are now made out of plastic it's in every glass of wine that you drink every every beer it is everywhere we have infected our planet with plastic and i know that if we if we manage to solve the plastic crisis if we manage to wean ourselves from this material then we will directly and indirectly fix so much else Because the thing that makes me so passionate about fixing plastic, helping the world turn off that plastic tap, is it is the invention of that material that has really enabled this massive ramp-up to waste and consumption that really is the cause of the climate crisis itself. If you look at the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are created just by the fact that we make stuff, if we make stuff in a different way, if we actually use Fully circular materials and systems, and plastic will never fit into that model, then we will dramatically reduce our emissions, our carbon, as well as our plastic.
1: I I was lucky enough to come to your presentation when you were here in New York and uh, kind of open up to all these materials that already exist. That's that's the crazy thing is that a lot of these solutions already exist. Where are you finding is the thing that's slowing down this process? And I know it's a very complex thing from policies to international uh, laws and all of that. Where are you, like if you could skip one point where you're finding the slowest um, progress and where would that be?
6: It's as ever, it's about money. So there is, all the solutions are out there. We don't need any new materials. There's a huge amount of innovation happening. What we need is to move the money to the innovation. And to do that, we need to do things like seriously tax plastic. If you as a manufacturer now, if you chose plastic as your material and you were responsible for it, second, third, fourth, fifth, forever life, you would rethink that material in the first place. Whereas right now, the Coca-Colas of the world, they can produce 120 billion plastic bottles and put them out into the environment because they have zero responsibility for what happens to them next. That doesn't happen in really any other industry where the damage that you cause, you have no responsibility for. Definitely wouldn't happen in the medical industry. Can you imagine that? So innovation is there just in bucket loads. There's so many great things. We have well over a thousand case studies and new materials featured on Plastic Free. And the the catalyst for all of this is going to be entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. And for me, if you look back and think, where, where have the seismic changes happened in living history of, of mankind? Has it been the economists that really moved the dial? Has it been the bankers, maybe? Who has it been that's really changed the way that we live? It's always been the creatives. So for us, building Plastic Free, creating this platform to empower, to educate, to ignite the creative industry, and there's 160 million of them globally, and for me, an entrepreneur is the most creative person you could ever be, the building of Plastic Free, to connect them with the systems changes, the plastic free materials, is a very important step. We need the creative industry to paint that picture for us of this incredible future, and then we can build a roadmap to it. So that's why, for me, I'm so passionate about plastic. I think it's the gateway. It's, there are no plastic deniers out there. It's an incredible gateway for us to rethink everything.
0: Thank you, Sean. So, everybody who's watching this, check out plasticfree.com. It is the most amazing site with the most awesome set of solutions showcased on there and more being added every day. I am now going to bring in Francis. And with you, I'm also going to bring in the ocean. You know, there's often that I know plastic doesn't just affect the sea, but it is the way that it was first brought to our attention uh, with the blue planet effect and all that. And also, actually, Francis, you represent not just the ocean, but this cutting edge entrepreneurial approach to the climate problem in general. So, can you introduce yourself to us? Uh, It's lovely to see you again. I haven't seen you for ages. Can you introduce yourself Um, and tell us um, what it is that you're working on?
7: Yeah absolutely and thank you so much for having me um so my name is frances simpson allen i am the director of policy and market development for ebb carbon ebb is a climate and ocean health company um and here's why we exist because the truth is that even if we stopped all emissions tomorrow if we never wrapped another banana in plastic uh, never sold another plastic bag uh, the problem remains that we have an excess of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We have a legacy of 200 years, give or take, emissions since the industrial revolution. Um, And by the IPCC's estimates, we need to remove 10 billion tonnes per year, every year, by 2050, just to stay at 1.5. So Without a doubt, the number one priority for everyone, everywhere, all at once, has to be said now, um, is to decarbonise. Uh, but even if we were to get to that overnight, we have a massive clean-up operation. Uh, and so Ebb Carbon... Um, is a technology company driven by science. We remove carbon dioxide from the air by accelerating the ocean's natural ability to capture and store carbon. And in the process, reduce ocean acidification, which is really one of the biggest problems uh, facing the ocean today.
0: And I mean, uh, it must be exciting about what you're doing, but also really challenging is the amount of policy areas you are crossing to get that product. You're, the, you're, in charge, you're One of your titles is um, go to market. You must have to go through so many policy and regulatory kind of Issues Because t- carbon removal is not without its controversy, for, for sure. What you do in the ocean and then where you put the stuff that you've met. That's on the deep sea bed. You've got to run up against the high seas treaty. Like, How are you managing to keep up the, the entrepreneur's you know, momentum in the face of so many different policy systems that you're having to swim through?
7: Yeah, uh, it's a big job, (laughs) is another way of saying that. Um, Unfortunately, it's not just me. Uh, But look, there's there's kind of a simple way of looking at carbon dioxide removal, um, and it helps cut through all of these different systems. And it's a classic issue of supply and demand. So first of all, the demand for um, climate responsible technology, for restorative practices, is still stifled. And that is true from international policies and treaties down to local incentives. So today, too often, whether you're a family, uh, a small business, a community or a big multinational like Shan was just speaking to, you're incentivized to take climate harming action. Um, And that's not something that is a natural occurrence in the world. That's the product of many, many decades of policy mistakes, what we know today to be mistakes. But this is legacy issue positions. So we can look at how we're creating a market and an environment where every action, every decision point across our global economy is incentivized responsibly. Um, So that's the first piece. This incorporates, I should say, the global justice angle. Um, We know that historically high emitters have a disproportionate responsibility to work on this cleanup. Um, That conversation has started at COP and and other UN forums, but it's really just the beginning of how these legacy polluters are going to pay for the restoration we need on our climate. Um, But the second is the supply. So, once you build the demand, you have to figure out the supply. Um, And today, there's a chokehold on supply for responsible climate technologies. We're still expected to deploy using a playbook that was decided by old industry. So, the regulations are inadequate, the permitting regimes are inadequate, um, and we don't have the paradigms we need to account for the risk benefit trade offs, as well as the cost of inaction. There's through lines from the United Nations down to the small local communities we're working with on the coast that are the ones really bearing the brunt of this inaction. Um, But it's definitely a lot to do.
1: And and speaking to that point, I mean, like, there's so many players involved. When you guys are approaching this, whether it's, I mean, like, because you're talking at a very global level, but you have mentioned that, you know, on the ground level, how, how do you manage how you're talking to each player that's involved I and mean, like how do, you, how do you straddle all the different communications?
7: Well, I should say that where we're looking to deploy our, our technology, the site, we start in those communities by listening. We don't go to those communities talking. And that's because we're committed as a company to re- deploying responsibly. Um, and that means not only going to communities where we can help combat the local effects of uh, ocean acidification where they're really feeling the pain of that problem in their daily lives but also learning from local communities and a lot of the time that looks like tribal nations that looks like local NGOs, um, aquaculture farmers folks that are growing oysters and, and salmon um, because they know their ecosystems better than anyone and they have an idea of where the real pain points but the opportunities are so we start by listening, but then we look at designing our systems, designing our projects in partnership with those communities so that we can really accelerate um, the benefits. And I know we spoke earlier about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in America. You know, I have to say that one of the best things that IRA has codified is this requirement for community benefit agreements for a lot of the federal funding that's been made available. This means that companies that are going to take advantage of government funding to accelerate these technologies have to have a legal agreement around community co-benefits in the areas they're deploying. Um, And the Justice40 initiative means that 40% of those benefits have to prioritise historically um, disadvantaged communities. So there's some really smart policy work that's gone into this, um, but it's certainly Necessary, not sufficient. We're still not there yet.
0: But I'm really glad you ended uh, what you were saying where you did because it's the perfect time to bring in Dominique um, and and I know all the things that you work on and care about very much. So Dominique, welcome. And uh, would you introduce yourself and let us know what's keeping you busy?
8: Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, So great to be here. So I am a queer social entrepreneur and climate activist. Um, And I come to this conversation with a few different hats, um, I think, as a lot of us do. Um, I'm the co-founder and former executive director of Youth Climate Lab, a global organization accelerating climate projects, climate ventures and policy ideas led by youth in over 77 countries. Um, I'm no longer involved in that. Now younger, cooler people are running it. Um, and so do check out their, their awesome work. But I'm spending a lot of my time these days um, working with as part of the Climate Justice Just Transition Donor Collaborative, trying to increase philanthropic investments into climate justice and just transition, um, especially into youth-led solutions. Um, and also working with climate tech companies and sparking, you know, kind of all sorts of, of partnerships, really trying to explore the role of climate tech In advancing uh climate justice and so basically i mean over overview of my roles is really just how do we make sure that these these transitions to uh, a safe and just future is really for everyone and making sure that we're not losing sight of you know the whole purpose of the sdgs the world's to-do list which is to leave no one behind
1: that's perfect that you that you actually mentioned that the, the idea of a a just future because in all of these conversations that we have, it's, it sometimes worries me that some people will be left behind. And most of the time, it's you know it's, in, it's people in the developing world, and you know a lot of these technologies will be 20 years ahead um, later than we will even experience it in the first world. Uh, I say that now because I'm in New York, whereas a few months ago I would have said. Help us. I'm in South Africa. Um, (laughs) But how do you, how do you, how do we then make sure that everybody is moving forward at the same rate? Are, Are people thinking that way? Are we making solutions for everybody instead of just going, you know, let's all wear this new material, but you know, everybody else will just have to hope their plastic shoes will last long enough until technology is affordable.
8: Yeah, this question of how do we make innovation work for all is actually, you know, my favorite icebreaker when I go to climate tech events. <laughs> um, but it's it's a really big one. I think it starts with, with us recognizing and uh, making sure that we're not just talking about the what, but really the how. How are we building these solutions and also who? who are we working with who is leading these solutions who is getting funding and who are these solutions really benefiting um i think we're at this point you know we're here because we don't have time at all and so we absolutely need to throw everything we've got we need everyone to change everything um but we can't do it in ways that perpetuates and exasperates current inequities we know that climate change francis you mentioned this um and it's been mentioned of course before is in this this panel is that, you know, climate change is impacting those who've had the least to do with causing the problem. It is impacting primarily uh, the communities in the global South. It's it's primarily impacting black indigenous people of color, women who, um, you know, have the least share of decision-making, but also who are receiving the least amount of, of capital for their solutions. And so if we're talking about this, you know, question of innovation for all—it absolutely has to be around how do we make sure that funding is going uh, to those who have the most at stake um, in 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 addressing these issues. Um, for me, this is very much rooted in in radical collaborations. I've heard that you know buzzword mentioned in this panel. It's my favorite buzzword. I love buzzwords. Um, but this one, I think, is a really key one um, because it really challenges us and emphasizes the importance of of working together, but also you know what are the ways in which we can look towards more open ended, unconventional uh, partnerships and and, and uh, collaborations, where you have not only you know policymakers, entrepreneurs coming together, but you know indigenous communities, youth activists. We've talked about the IRA being you know the result of of uh, pushes from all different parts of the system, um, coming to to huge innovations. And so, how do we really you know continue to to center that work?
0: Gosh, I wish I could take um this particular panel on the road and just throw it at all the moments, all the systems, because I think we'd really change something. And we're going to run out of time, which is, um, I mean, it's, it's on brand. We have no time. But it's <laughs> annoying because we have not a lot of more time. We never there, time. There's never enough time. So I am going to ask maybe a last question to all of you, because um, I'm not too... Um, Boss, bossy, I don't mind who answers first. So maybe raise your hand if, once you think of what your answer would be. I think if if there was one thing you could change uh, to speed up your work and, and achieve where you're headed to get the sort of systems change in that we need, what would it be? And within that, oh, we've lost a couple of people, I think. So that means Sean and Michael are advantaged in, in to answer first. Um, if within that, what is the one thing that you would change? And and If if it's relevant, what is the role of activists and citizens in this? We've had a lot of talk today about uh, government policy, you know, research coalitions, all really needed and necessary. But if there's one thing that you could do right now as entrepreneurs and campaigners, what would it be?
5: Look, we're all, you know, citizens. We all have actions that matter, whether you're, you know... Working out in on a farm, whether you're running a government, everything in between, and so you know that in and of itself can mean something when you pull together, when you bring these communities together and and, and actions and in incredible groups like we just heard from. So all of our all of our actions matter. Um, we have the solutions that was also said, and and they exist. So that's hopeful. The problem is we have to overcome you know uh, upwards of a hundred years of of action in the other way. So we need whole new sets of systems. So ideally, we can redesign things and do them in line with a lot of what you know Dominique just shared, where everyone is participating and, and it is feasible and possible. You need government to lead and, and be aligned on the on that collaboration. You need the big corporates to be willing to take a leap and to take chances on new technologies. And the unlock for us on your question is we need capital early on to be willing to think a little longer than next quarter think you know a couple years out think just beyond the other side because if we keep doing more of the same we're going to be heading in the direction that sean was highlighting which is it's it's getting worse and worse even with all these great solutions we need action now so capital Capital, capital, all systems change.
0: All systems change, capital and action. Now, Sean, you put your hand up. What's your What's ah, your one
6: thing? I feel, I feel bad, girl, because I can see Francis and Dominique, and you can't. So pick me, pick me. Um, uh, so I'm going to um, I'll make it really snappy. I had a call this weekend from one of the TV channels in the UK saying, "Could you come on and be part of a debate about the fact the UK government are now saying we need to have seven bins." In every UK kitchen. What do you think about that? What, what, which side of the debate would you be on? I said, I'd be on the side of the debate that says, why is there one bin? Why is there a bin? Can we fundamentally ask ourselves why we have normalized waste? So my call would be let's ban the bin. Can you imagine if we suddenly thought nothing can be single-use, be it plastic, whatever we make it out of, everything has to be re- reusable, go back to that original system that, you know, before plastic broke it, where everything we made had a second life, third, fourth, fifth, forever life. Wouldn't that be amazing? So so my action would be radical because it would be ban the bin.
0: So simple and yet so massive, <laughs> ban the bin. I love it. Okay, I'm going to come to... Uh, uh, so, Francis waving your hands first. I'm going to be even snappier. I'm going to
7: say put a price on carbon, fix the economic distortions, don't put the burden on the poorest in the world to make the responsible choice when it's often too expensive.
0: Absolutely. Which, handily, <laughs> for, for waiting, Dominique, you get to have the final word. I would
8: say that let us value multi-solving. You know, we can feed one bird with two scones or as many scones as possible, Um, And this issue of climate must be, you know, multi-solved with issues of gender equality, poverty, you name it. And so I think it's very much, you know, recognizing that we can multi-solve and and funding models and founders should be looking at how um, we can really get, you know, approaches and solutions that are multi-solving
0: in this current time. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you all so much and for everyone watching. Honestly, look these guys up. They're all amazing. And I very much hope to see you all again soon and possibly get us all together one of these moments. But thanks for now, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.
1: That was brilliant.
0: I mean that honestly what was wasn't that great? Where have you I need you back. Where have you it was
1: it was so great. Am I not still there? Am I? Yeah, can yeah, you yeah. My voice? We got you. We can the hear you. Voice of God. We can hear you. Yeah, well, you've, you've gone
0: to well, heaven basically. But we can hear you. She can't see you. are sort I'll, of in the cloudy swirl. But we can hear I'm you. I'm still
1: here. Oh, I'm you're still back. Here.
0: Don't
1: worry. Hi. So I think it's brilliant. I think uh, Sean said something that I hadn't heard before, which I think was absolutely brilliant. Which is the idea of manufacturers should be responsible for the for the for the entire life of these plastics, and and that just changes how we use them because they are a forever forever think, so they should be responsible in terms of how they think about how they make them. Like, okay, cool, you can sell it, but you have to have a system that, you know, what happens when it breaks? What happens when it gets old? You should also be responsible. I think that's that was very important in, in, in changing how we, because we, if you can't solve it, stop using it kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Is that if, it if it's such a problem that you can't deal with it in your are in kitchen yeah. without a bin, then you shouldn't have brought it into the kitchen in the first place. And if yeah, we all stop yeah. doing that, Then we'd be in an incredible place. The thing I really liked was um, that we ended in a place of intersectionality and like a holistic Mm -hmm. solve. Like you asked the question and, and Dominique answered it about we can't solve these things in a way that people are left behind or that they disproportionately benefit the developed world. And yet again, the developed world gets wealthier and, you know, and happier and safer. And the developing world has to, as you say, manage with its plastic shoes and hope that they don't break. You know, so yeah. I, I, think, I think we did it. I think we nailed it. That was our first live podcast. We had to be clever. We had to
1: listen. We, team, we, we had to be interesting. We had to let people talk. I think we did well. I think we, we did well, and it's just it's just exciting to be able to bring all these people in because I think what we've what I've found was really the integrating theme throughout the season that we've done of the podcast is the idea of everybody has to be involved. It's the idea if it's integrated, it's complicated, but if 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 we don't bring everybody in from indigenous to national policy levels we're not going to solve this. And I think that comes up without us even asking. So it's good that everybody's already thinking in that way. And it's exciting that, you know, empower the smallest to the biggest and we can get to the end.
0: Together, we're going to get there, right? So, yeah. So, there we go. So, look, let's treat it as if it's the end of a podcast. So, this has been an idiot's guide to, to saving the world. Just Thanks to We Don't Have Time in Stockholm Climate Week for having us. If you want to find us, <laughs> an idiot's guide to saving the world, we are on wherever you get your podcasts. And so, that is going to be me, Gail Galli, saying thank you very much.
1: Goodbye. And Lois O'Madinga saying free the banana. Bye. <laughs> This episode of An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World was an audio production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. It was produced by Sarah Kadush and edited by Iva Manley.
0: Now listen back to all the wonderful episodes in our archives. Is they're still topical and full of tips on how you can change the world? If you like them, then one final plea to tell us so. Just leave a short review. A thank you, and we'll see you next time.